0: So there's confidentiality, there's things that are are not accessible to the ordinary citizen, even if they wanted to get them. Mm -hmm. So one of the kind of unique outcomes that you get from this, which is troubling perhaps, is those areas where people think government should do the most stuff. So you say like, well, what's government? Even limited government types will say, you know, courts, police, national defense kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. In those areas, you're oftentimes going to have the most severe information asymmetries. The national security state, I think, being the kind of pinnacle of this, and it makes it near impossible for citizens to monitor what their government is doing, even if we put aside issues of the weakness of a single vote. Uh, and that poses a real challenge for people who believe in a democratic system, who believe in individual agency, uh, and because that's going to lead to things like noxious markets.
1: <sighs> Welcome to the AIER Standard. I'm Ethan Yang. Today we're recording here at the Mercatus Markets and Society Conference in Falls Church, Virginia. Today I had the privilege of sitting down Chris Coyne, a professor of economics at George Mason University and a director of the F.A. Hayek program for the Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. His work focuses on applying markets to national security issues like war and peace and international arms deals. On this episode, we will be discussing his his research into so-called noxious markets and the government's role in promoting lethal arms sales to unscrupulous actors. We will also be discussing how we can be more mindful in ensuring that markets do not magnify immoral and damaging behavior. I hope you enjoy your discussion. Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. And thank you for having me.
1: Of course. So it's been really great to find you at this conference. And I attended your keynote speech last night. Um, You're really touching on an interesting intersection between uh, something you don't really see often, which is like foreign policy and markets at the same time. Typically, these people don't talk to each other. Uh, I was wondering what inspired you to sort of start thinking about these issues.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it was very personal, which is... uh, I started graduate school in 2001 at George Mason University. And I came from New York City. So I worked in finance in the Wall Street area. So I, w- I would take the, the PATH train from Hoboken, New Jersey into the basement of the World Trade Center and then mm. walk down to, to the office. Mm. So I come from from there to, to Fairfax, Virginia. And three weeks into graduate school is the 9-11 attacks. Mm. And so that hits the World Trade Center of course, the Pentagon, which was 10 miles from George Mason University. And then following that, the US government starts the war on terror and uh, invades Afghanistan and Iraq. And so uh, I realized very early on in that effort that very few people were thinking about the overarching issues from an economic perspective. So what type of knowledge would you need to nation build to impose liberal institutions and establish them in a society? What incentives would you need? And so that turned into my dissertation. The political economy of u.s nation building and then i've been working on it ever since mm. and so now as you mentioned i'm focused very much on issues of, of kind of where does peace come from uh, and different perspectives on that
1: mm. and reminding remind me again what's your position at it's, is it mercatus or george mason or both at the same time
0: both so i i'm a professor of economics in the department of economics at george mason that's my main mm-hmm. uh job my my, my full-time job, if you will, (laughs) and then I'm the associate director of the Hayek program, um, which is associated with uh, uh, the Mercatus Center, and that uh, is is an affiliation. Um, But, of course, Mercatus is affiliated with George Mason, and and, and as part of the Hayek program, we have a whole host of programs with graduate students um, and uh, a whole host of other things, and so I I wear both those hats at the same time. Mm
1: -hmm. And so I, turn, I attend George Mason Law School, don't know too much about the undergrad. Does your, are you teaching mostly just econ classes or do you get to like really play around with the research you're doing right now?
0: Yeah, a mix. So I teach at all levels. I teach undergraduates, I teach master students, and I teach mm-hmm. PhD students. The uh, PhD students and uh, uh, the undergrads I teach, uh, uh, and the masters I teach, straight up econ classes. But I am able to mix with my interests. And, and to provide one example, several years ago I designed a course called Defense and Peace Economics, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a a class that uh, senior uh, uh, undergraduates, so juniors and seniors who are undergraduates, more advanced in their undergraduate education can take, and then master students, so it's cross-listed. As an elective, the master students can take it. And it allows me to kind of marry my interests in economics and the economic way of thinking with issues of conflict and peacemaking, which of course tie in with things like development economics. Uh, and, and, uh, and a whole host of kind of interdisciplinary areas of study. And so I love teaching it, and uh, it's, its I feel very privileged that I've had the opportunity to design it and teach it on a regular basis.
1: Mm. And how receptive do you think the, I guess, the mainstream national security community is, is something we can call it? Like, how receptive do you think they are to uh, blending these market ideas with their traditional conceptions of statecraft.
0: Yeah, well, uh, on the one hand, they they are receptive. On the other hand, they're not. What I mean by that is I, I think they're receptive from the perspective that they have a kind of vision of what their purpose is and what they need to do. And so they want to access knowledge in order to act upon the world and do things. So from that standpoint, they're quite receptive. So from the perspective, though, of, of pointing out how little they can do about Mm -hmm. designing the world, Mm -hmm. Uh, how little they are capable of doing what they think they can do, I think Mm -hmm. they're a whole lot less receptive. (laughs) And part Mm -hmm. of that is based on their ideological view, which is if you are in that setting, you you hold a certain set of assumptions about what you think can be done and should be done. And then part of it is just the incentives in bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, as you when you have a bureau whose purpose is to intervene in the world, you're going to get intervention in the world, because that's how the bureau survives and thrives. An expense. And so um, that, that works against kind of arguments for humility and constraint and, and restraint.
1: Mm. And that's definitely a theme I've seen at the Federal Trade Commission is being on the inside, people thinking that antitrust can solve all our problems. Yes. There's not a single market failure that can be solved with, some more more antitrust or more government intervention, so definitely interesting perspective. Um, Your research touches on a topic, you introduced a term to me when I was reading your paper that I've never heard before, which is called uh, noxious markets. Uh, So can you give us an idea of what that means?
0: Yeah, Uh, and so the idea of noxious markets, it actually comes from a philosopher uh, whose name is Deborah Satz. She Mm -hmm. is at Stanford, and she wrote a book on noxious markets, uh, private markets. Mm -hmm. And the idea of noxious markets from her perspective are morally objectionable markets, and they can be morally objectionable because, objectionable because of preconditions. so when people enter into an exchange there's certain things that we might find it morally questionable, mm-hmm. and then the outcomes might be morally uh, questionable and so she she puts at things like uh, organ sales mm-hmm. uh, prostitution, uh, you know talking about the possibility of of um, uh, drug use, these type of things. And the the argument is that on the front end, uh, there's these conditions of, of what she calls weak agency. So people might be vulnerable. People might have very low information about the consequences of the decision. And so from her perspective, this is reason to be skeptical of certain types of transactions. And then on the back end, those outcomes, because people have weak information or weak, weak knowledge and they're vulnerable, it can lead to harmful outcomes, both for them and for society. And so what, what Sats is getting us to think about is, are there certain economic interactions which perhaps we should limit because not of efficiency concerns, mm. but because of moral <clears throat> concerns? And what my co-authors, uh, Yael Shami and Nathan Goodman, what we tried to do was to take that framework and apply it to government mm. and say, well, wait a second, let's say there's something to this framework. Well. It's not just private actors that interact and in, in exchange. Governments do this all the time. They interact with, with, with private entities and exchange and interact with other governments. And so, what happens if we exchange, uh, extend the logic of noxious markets to the government realm? Mm. And so, one area where we focus on in our, our research is on the international arms trade. Mm. And our conclusion is that it is a highly noxious market, mm-hmm. it uh, 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 <clears throat> takes advantage of the vulnerable. It ha- there's massive information asymmetries, both domestically and internationally, and it, there's reason to believe it leads to really significant harms for societies where the arms go, but also the broader world as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, 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 find this line of research interesting because it, it moves beyond narrowly what what are viewed kind of kind of as narrow economic considerations of efficiency and it really brings in some interesting issues about morality and the moral conditions under which people contract and then the long-term consequences of those things so it gives Mm -hmm. us a a richer picture of the world i think as well as fostering interdisciplinary conversations between economists but also philosophers and people interested in ethics and so on
1: Mm. so to understand uh, a little bit about the government side Noxious markets, I want to ask a couple questions about this traditional private sector, like kind of like that foundational research, because I haven't been able to take a look at it. So the the logic behind it is that um, there are many markets, like the trade for uh, prostitution, uh, like mind-altering drugs, whatever, name, name something that society might find uh, distasteful. And typically, you know, like a faithful markets might say that um, you know, things that society likes will become more plentiful. Things society doesn't like will not become plentiful. But then there's this area of the market where, for some reason, prostitution and drugs and all these terrible things keep sticking around. So, uh, what what exactly is the or what is the suggested cause of that?
0: Yeah. So, so uh, it, 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 it's not that it it's not that the the, the the they stick around that there's a cause. It's that there's a demand for certain things. Mm-hmm. So think about organ sales this is one of the examples that that sats talks about and i and i think highlights the point and and if we allow for organ sales economics tells us we'll we'll we'll, uh uh, tend towards uh uh, buyers and sellers coordinating and and that will be a preferable outcome from a a efficiency standpoint compared Mm -hmm. to one where it's banned where you've basically a price control of zero Mm -hmm. which is what happens when you you completely ban the sale of something Uh, and of course we can point out the economic effects if people need kidneys Uh, there's going to be a shortage of kidneys, which there is empirically for Mm -hmm. for people on on the waiting list for kidney transplants. What what people that are worried about noxious markets point out is that, look, you know, people are going to sell their organs who are in need of income. So you're going to get vulnerable people who sell them. They won't have the full knowledge of the long-term health consequences. Mm -hmm. And this is going to harm them in ways that we can't fully anticipate ex-ante. It also leads to these longer-term consequences that kind of erode the the ethics of society and so on down the line. The question then becomes from an economic standpoint, in the realm of purely private markets I'm talking mm-hmm. about now, are there ways of overcoming that? Mm-hmm. So do we really think that people don't have information? Well, on the one hand, they don't. No, we all have imperfect information. But are there ways to fill the gaps in private settings that would empower people to have that information to make decision making? I'm of the position I think market mechanisms could solve that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but others are skeptical of it. Uh, and. Uh, the, the differences, I think, when for us, when you move to government, it's not just normal information asymmetries, but there's all the pathologies and frictions of politics, mm-hmm. all kind of the public choice issues about uh, uh, democratic politics and electoral officials doing things that citizens don't know about and, and the mm-hmm. ability to punish them through voting and the limitations mm-hmm. of that and bureaus and, and, and agencies and, and the information asymmetries between those bureaus and the citizens. And so to, to our way of thinking, my authors and I, uh, any issues that exist in private markets are going to be exasperated in, in government markets because of these additional frictions.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I guess the informational asymmetry as it applies to government, um, so that's sort of explaining why um, we vote for politicians that we hope are going to do a good job and all of a sudden, you know, we're... Uh, There's a war on drugs, there's a war on terror, there's, you know, civilians, innocent civilians are getting killed. There's like all the things that people might like to complain about the U.S. government and yet we voted for at the same time. It's like you're saying it's basically due to we don't really know what's going on in the bureaucracy as it's kind of operating on zone that we can't really control it.
0: So there's there's multiple channels (laughs) through which this operates. So so we. In a, in a democracy, citizens vote for someone that's supposed to represent their interests. So one issue, of course, is the issue of the, the influence of a single vote mm-hmm. on, on the outcome of the election. And one of the insights that comes out of this literature is the idea that even where knowledge and information is available, political information, I'll call it, mm-hmm. people have a very, people, I mean voters, have a very weak incentive to gather it because their vote doesn't influence the, the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, so that's even when information is available. Then on top of it, as you so you elect people, they, whoever they are, they go and operate in government, they hire, hire bureaucrats to do stuff. Mm-hmm. So you have a very convoluted bureaucracy, pick any area in the federal government, certainly, but even in the state governments, mm-hmm. it's very hard for an ordinary person to, they might know agency names, but do they know the inner workings of it? Mm-hmm. No, there's no way to, mm-hmm. to, to follow this. And, and, and that introduces then an enormous amount of information asymmetries between the citizen and the, the, the bureaus. And in some of those instances, you could fill that gap. Like you get information if you want to, but in the areas that are most important, you actually can't get information. Mm -hmm. So think about the national security state, the national security state, all the agencies that constitute it, it has secrecy writ large. Mm -hmm. So there's confidentiality, there's things that are not accessible to the ordinary citizen, even if they wanted to get them. Mm -hmm. So one of the kind of unique outcomes that you get from this, which is troubling perhaps, is those areas where people think government should do the most stuff. So you say like, well, what's government, even the limited government types will say, you know, courts, police, national defense kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. In those areas, you're oftentimes gonna have the most severe information asymmetries the national security state, I think, being the kind of pinnacle of this. Mm-hmm. And it makes it near impossible for citizens to monitor what their government is doing, even if we put aside issues of the weakness of a single vote. Uh, and that poses a real challenge for people who believe in a democratic system, who believe in individual agency, uh, and because that's going to lead to things like noxious markets, mm-hmm. because one of the foundational features of noxious markets is weak agency, mm-hmm. and it's going to erode democratic uh, kind of the democratic features of society because democracy can't work. Mm. I'm, I'm not even talking about just voting. I'm talking about democracy and kind of people having a voice in their government mm. and having a say in what rules exist and the rules under which they live.
1: Mm. So can you apply the the frame of noxious markets in the private sector to uh, your arms trade arguments? So like, what exactly is the... I guess like the the moral issue at play, and then what are the information asymmetries, or all the different factors that are making it happen against what society might want?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's multifaceted, so it gets complex. So I'll just highlight a couple aspects for for the sake of a, a kind of hinting at it in our discussion. The U.S. government is the world's largest arms trader. It's mm-hmm. it's the, it's the worm, wor, world's largest arms dealer um, mm-hmm. to to other governments. And some of these governments, you know, the UK, you'd say, okay, they're, they're an established government with constraints, so let's put them aside. But then you look at a government like Saudi Arabia. So the US government sells a lot of weapons to Saudi Arabia. And you say, okay, the US government transfers those weapons. Do US citizens know about these things? And they can know about them in the aggregate, but then do people that live in Saudi Arabia have a say in this? Mm-hmm. And they might have some influence on their government, but very limited. And so from that standpoint, in the framework of noxious markets, the powerful players are the governments. Mm. They're the ones with the power, not the citizens. But the citizens incur some costs of the decisions that are made by these governments. And it's not just the citizens that live in the United States, that live in Saudi Arabia. To the extent that other people outside of Saudi Arabia are affected by the actions of Saudi Arabia, they are also influenced by it. Mm. They have no say in the political process. They have no political voice in that process. So that's an example of weak agency. Citizens in the United States, citizens in Saudi Arabia, citizens in other areas that are affected by those decisions have very weak agency. On the front end, they have no say. It's true that you or I in America could write a strongly lettered word, kind of worded letter to our, mm-hmm. our representative. It's probably going to have no effect at all. Mm-hmm. And so we have real no control over this or influence on the front end. Then on the back end, you know, people say, well, what do you do with the arms? Some people say, well, no, it creates peace through deterrence. Mm -hmm. Maybe. But another argument, which is like international relations 101, is the security dilemma, which is when you give people arms, you Mm -hmm. make other people feel less secure. (laughs) So then that leads to an arms race, Mm -hmm. which can make on net people no less safe, but you have a lot more weapons. Mm -hmm. And when you have a lot more weapons, the risk of those weapons being used to both initiate and perpetuate violence, often against the most vulnerable people in the world, increases. Mm -hmm. And again, then on the back end, you also have weak agency and vulnerability. And you have real harms that are being done to both specific individuals, but more broadly to entire societies. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, and, and that's just one channel, there's other illustrations of it. But f- just from that one kind of short, relatively short example, you can see how you could conclude that that market is quite noxious.
1: Mm. And so what, who are the, um, I guess the uninformed actors in this picture? Cause I think from a private perspective, it's like, I am selling my organs cause I don't really have enough information about like how bad this is. And then my own personal circumstances are motivating me. In this case, the, the transacting actors are the, the governments. And yes. so, what is the what is the reward are the the information asymmetries? Like, where are the I guess like the uninformed, um, not in a good situation type of actors that are kind yeah. of what this happen?
0: So, so the main information asymmetries would be the citizenry that lives under each of the transacting governments, mm. as well as the extent that there are any externalities, so that there are any external costs that fall outside of the transacting parties. So, again, if you think about, to go back to a point you raised earlier about externalities, in private markets, people say, well, you and I will interact, but it mm-hmm. produces a negative externality, and that, fa- that cost falls on someone else, and government needs to come in and fix the market failure. Mm-hmm. We can have that discussion, but one thing that when, that public choice economics makes you realize is there's political externalities as well. Mm-hmm. When governments transact, it also can have negative externalities that spill onto other people. Mm-hmm. Outside that transaction, mm. but there's no super super government to come mm. in and impose a, a, a tax on them or to mm. regulate them. We have international <clears throat> organizations, but they're relatively weak in terms of having like teeth <clears throat> to back things up. Uh, and certainly, powerful governments like the United States can break international law whenever they choose to, and they do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They can ignore it. They can invoke it when it benefits them and ignore it when it doesn't. And mm. there's no court to penalize them. And so with the arms trade, what you get is is you get the exchange, you affect the people that live in each of those societies in different ways, but you also often generate these kind of political negative externalities mm. that then spill over onto people that live outside of those direct polities. And there's no way there's no body taking those into account. No no, no when I say body, no organization taking those into account. And so from that perspective, the noxious effects are are even more severe than just the people that live under the transacting governments. Mm.
1: So I guess the, um, to make the comparison, the I guess the check or the correction on say heroin usage is the fact that um, if you use too much and you cause a lot of trouble, you can go to jail, you can get sued. And that's sort of like the the check on the externalities that might be caused by heroin sales.
0: Well, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But there's we can also, I think, think of private mechanisms as well. Those, those are more state-oriented <clears> ways, you know, cr- kind of crime and punishment. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, uh, one thing to be said with drug use is that uh, just let it go, right? Mm-hmm. People can use drugs. will have effects. Mm-hmm. And we've moved in that direction with certain drugs, mm-hmm. uh, uh, with marijuana, for instance, in certain states at least. Uh, now with these other harder drugs, the issue, it's challenging. But one of the things that happens when you criminalize drug use is you obviously drive it underground, you create crime, all the kind of standard effects of prohibition, which are, are significant, of mm-hmm. course, but the other thing is, is when you stigmatize it. People that are unfortunate enough to be trapped in that terrible cycle of addiction struggle to receive help because it's stigmatized. Mm-hmm. So another way to address those type of issues potentially is rather than affecting the supply side or the demand side through crime and punishment, through, mm-hmm. through, through raising the cost of, of throwing people in jail, mm-hmm. it's to try to focus on treatment, mm-hmm and treatment as a way of helping people that are addicted who have no way out that don't want to be addicted um, and seeking ways to to address it there rather than throwing them in jail Mm -hmm. Uh, because it is true that on the margin when you raise the cost of something you'll get less of it so that's what uh, punishment tries to do Mm -hmm. but in terms of assisting people to overcome their addiction to be contributing members to society and living a a flourishing life, you can make an argument that putting them in jail has a a counterproductive effect. Mm -hmm. Because when you're you're pushed into the legal system, the the criminal justice system, it has detrimental effects to a person's life trajectory, their ability to get a job, their ability to get an education. And if anything, in certain cases, that can incentivize subsequent crime because when you block off non-criminal ways of earning a living and being a contributing member of society, it reduces the cost of turning to crime in order to make a living and to get things.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I, I didn't mean to maybe make the conversation about the war on drugs. And no, of course, no, of course, of course, I think I meant, I meant to bring in an example to, to say, or at least to pivot to the idea of where are the corrections to the market failures? And then you, I think that also, you also pointed out, that like, yes, you can either have a state penalty correction or you can have a societal I guess, uh, rehab correction at the end of the day, this private noxious market does have these institutions in place to, uh, curve what we would see as the externality. Yeah. And
0: the other really fascinating point I think to highlight on this, which, which is, I think an important point with externalities in general is entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. which is that any, you can view any market failure as a failure in a point in time compared to what an ideal should be, but it also means the profit opportunity. Mm -hmm. So if there is an externality fencing in the externality generates a a, a profit for the person that can do it. Uh, Information asymmetries are often viewed as a market failure. If someone can overcome information asymmetries, it reduces the market failure, but it also generates a profit. That's what middle people do. Mm -hmm. They bring parties together. They reduce information costs for those parties. And in (coughs) doing so, they've created an opportunity for those parties to transact, but they figure out a way to monetize it, Mm -hmm. to to earn a profit. Mm -hmm. And so what would that look like in the realm of, these kinds of noxious markets, whether it's like drug use or gambling or whatever it might be, I'm not quite sure, but, but I, I don't need to be sure. That's one of the beautiful things about entrepreneurship is that we don't know ex ante, what it will look like, but we need human creativity to do it. And by forcing things into criminal behavior, and it, that's the solution in many ways, it crowds out those alternative, uh, kind of solutions from emerging.
1: Mm. And I'm definitely on board with the idea that, um, private noxious markets can also have private market solutions to the externalities. And, but I, I guess that brings me back to, uh, the public noxious markets that we're talking about. Cause it seems like, um, you can't make the U S and Saudi Arabia go to, go to like, you know, like peace counseling or something like that. Right. 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 (laughs) Um, there's no international police to say I'm putting you in jail. There's no, uh, well, you can't get, you can't educate people about these arms sales because in many ways it's probably classified and if you want to intervene, mm-hmm. i.e., like the, the equivalent of, like, you know, putting your friend into rehab, you can't, you know, you can't put the Pentagon in right. rehab.
0: Yes. So, you know, you can't. The, the mi- big difference between the private sector and the public sector is exactly what you just highlighted, which is that government by design has certain legal rights that private parties don't. And that relates to the use of force, mm-hmm. coercion, which, which uh, in, in many areas, which private parties don't have a legal themselves, which is when, you know, for instance, with policing and ideas of kind of qualified immunity, mm-hmm. you and I as private citizens don't have that privilege if we harm each other. Uh, so what does it mean when you're insulated from the cost of your action? You're going to mm-hmm. engage in more of that action, even if it's bad because you're not incurring the full cost. And one of the things that happens in politics is you cost spread and you can't sue people, citizens can't sue people in government. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, 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 at least for most of the actions they undertake for, uh, representing government. And so that leads to a over consumption of noxious or harmful behaviors with no clear corrective mechanism. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I don't want to keep us too much uh, from the rest of the conference. So if, I guess if you can wrap us up with, um, you set up this idea of the nauseous markets in the government sector, and to me, it just seems so hopeless and perilous. So I was wondering if you can give us a little bit of hope of some ideas of what perhaps intellectuals, people interested in the issue, can try to look at to perhaps remedy these these matters.
0: Sure. Well, I think there's two aspects. One, one is which is perhaps mundane, but I think important, is, is what I might call diagnostics. So, so diagnosing the problem, studying these things, thinking about them, pointing it out. And that's what... My co-authors and I try to do like, let's recognize that this idea is relevant and how it might be relevant. And that's valuable in itself to mm. highlight that something ex- exists and how it operates. That's a diagnostic aspect. Then there's the therapeutic. So what do you, what do, you do about it? And that's a, certainly a challenge. Uh, being aware of things is step one, by the way. So the <laughs> diagnostics is key. For, <laughs> do you, before you can do something, you have to be aware of something. But I think that one way around it is then to focus on the scale and scope of government. So what things do we want government doing, and what things do we not want them doing? And the interesting thing about the noxious markets, which is perhaps the pessimistic point, is that it shows that public choice scholars actually might be too optimistic about government, which is kind of interesting, because most people think of public choice scholars as being skeptical of government. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is, once you take into account the moral considerations, the cost of government action might be even higher Mm -hmm. than the standard kind of economic market uh, government failure type arguments. So what, how, then the challenge becomes, how do we shrink government? And that's a huge challenge. But, but one thing that, that my co-authors and I talk about, not so much in this paper but elsewhere, is the importance of ideology, the mm-hmm. importance of how citizens view the role of government and looking for alternatives to peacemaking that don't rely on transferring weapons, that don't rely on this idea of deterrence, which many people have like, you know, more weapons is better because it deters. Mm -hmm. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe the the reliance on militarism fuels militarism, in which case you have the opposite effect. And so thinking about what these alternative arrangements might look like that don't rely on top down government force and then exploring how those might be implemented in the actual world, I think, is an important kind of alternative to checking government noxious markets.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You've given us a lot to think about.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.
1: All right. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you.